Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Right out of the box, we have a caller. Uh, hello, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good evening, uh, Dr. Don. Can we have your name, uh, please, and where you're calling from? Certainly, yes. Bruce calling from Elkhorn. Hi, Bruce. Hi. Uh, calling about uh, medical uh, opinions that seem to differ on low testosterone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of understood that it can impact cardiovascular disease and looking at linking it to triglycerides and uh, a number of other uh, health risks. But at the same time, it seems that general practitioners uh, look at, quote, normal being like 300 uh, nanograms per deciliter, whereas uh, the American Urology Association put out guidelines in 2018 that stated that you ought to be in the third uh, tertile or second tertile and putting you at 500 to 800. But then, you know, the medical establishment kind of takes decades to catch up on things. Well, it's uh, hormone replacement in general, Bruce, is a very controversial topic. The uh, and part of that, I think, well, there's lots of factors that go into that. One of which is the medicalization of something that's normal, like aging, and then on the other hand, none of us really want to age. Uh, certainly, not any faster than we have to. So then it becomes then you can you get into. Do, discussions about, oh, equity issues, and you get into discussions about, well, what are the risks and what's the benefit? And everybody has an opinion, and there's a lot of different ones, and so it gets pretty, pretty murky. So I do want to tell you that the, uh, I think there's some key take-homes here on the subject, and one of them has to do with, nothing to do with testosterone per se, it has to do with what constitutes healthy aging. What do I look for to tell me that this person is not aging well? And one of the key things that I look at is inflammation and their insulin resistance. So do they have higher levels of insulin? Are they becoming insulin resistant? So inflammation, insulin resistant, and muscle mass, uh, what we call sarcopenia, which is where you are uh, perhaps you have normal body weight, but the percentage of your weight that is muscle versus the percentage that is fat is dropping. So you're getting weaker and frailer. And that is, you know, the road to perdition as far as unhealthy aging is concerned. So I really think we should change the discussion to what our goals are. And our goals are that our elders, uh, how old did you say you were? I'm sorry. Uh, 72. 72. Okay, so life expectancy at birth has actually dropped lately, but I sort of look at 85 as the place where the rubber really hits the road, and that's what in the geriatric training I had. After 85, you're never surprised if someone goes downhill quickly, and you're mildly surprised if you st- if they're still around at 95, but you aren't expecting them to necessarily go downhill uh, at 85. You just wouldn't be surprised if they did. Is that clear? I know it sounds maybe it, it's it's more like probability. You How good how good do you look at 72? How good do you look at 78? Do you have you and how much have you deteriorated? Have you developed any of those things like 
uh, well, I've a, got inflammation. Triglycerides. I've got fatty liver disease, and again, and my, it's not based on my diet. Okay, it's not my diet that's doing that. So the fatty liver disease is has a very high correlation with insulin resistance. Essentially, what happens there is your pancreas is sensing that your blood sugar go, is is going up, so it sends out more insulin to bring the blood sugar down. And the pancreas is operating well in uh, people with fatty liver disease. It's making lots of insulin. So this is the op- this is type two derangement, too much insulin, as opposed to type one derangement, not enough insulin. Now the insulin actually turns off your ability to burn those triglycerides. So now you've got all this fluffy triglyceride running around in the bloodstream, and the liver's job is to keep the bloodstream clean and pull stuff out. So it starts pulling it out and stashing it in itself, metaphorically speaking, and you get fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NASH. And if you get enough fat in your liver, it starts to scar, and it becomes less effective at cleaning the blood and so on. So you've already got... A risk what I was going back to is that the Tromsø study they did in Norway showed that low serum testosterone was inversely associated with non-fasting serum triglycerides. Well, so of course, of but that doesn't mean yeah. giving testosterone's going to fix it. Why would that do that, Bruce? What what I where I was going with this is I was going to say the, that's where the the secondary thing that testosterone about testosterone comes in. How do you improve insulin resistance? You build muscle, okay? If you have more muscle, then you can exercise longer and harder. And when you do exercise, the muscle needs fuel. So it sucks. It's like a turbocharger in a car. It sucks the glucose out of the bloodstream so the pancreas can go, oh, all right, glucose is dropping. We're all good. Um, I think I did this last week, but I'll go ahead and and just, it was a short one. And it was, you know, if you get up and walk around after dinner, even a little bit of muscle activity slows down the rate of change, the acceleration of your blood glucose. If the acceleration is slower, the pancreas doesn't react as much, you don't kick out as much insulin, and everything balances out better. So one of the reasons that I use testosterone, that's where I started where I started, is I use testosterone in people who are losing muscle mass or who have relatively low muscle mass uh, for their age uh, or and in a man, you, you want around, I, I kind of put it at 75%, okay? If they aren't at least 75% lean body mass, and that's not just muscle, that's your blood, that's your, your bone structure. Uh, but those things all added up. If it's 75% of body weight, I'm generally pretty happy with that individual. And usually their inflammatory markers are low, and usually their insulin resistance is good, and they don't have extra triglycerides depositing in their uh, depositing in their liver. So if the first thing I would I would do in an individual like that as a medical doctor who's individualizing care, I'm not a researcher, so I'm just using what I understand about the physiology to craft a treatment system for that individual that targets their vulnerabilities. So if uh, in your case it, we know we can infer that there's a problem with insulin resistance. How One thing we can do is make more muscle. So you would be a good candidate for testosterone. First thing we have to do is make sure that you don't have prostate cancer because pr- testosterone will make that grow faster. So 
you have to monitor carefully for that because seven, a lot of 72-year-old men have a, a silent prostate cancer. So you have to watch that PSA. And it'll pop when you first start testosterone, but then it goes back down and it's, the rate of change should not be elevated. If, it's, if that PSA is going up quickly, like a point a year, you're probably feeding a cancer, which is you know, not a good idea. See what I'm saying? But let's suppose somebody has a lot of muscle mass uh, and they still have uh, fatty fat in their liver. Well, that person, that's not going to help them. And we need to we need to do something else for increasing their insulin resistance. And we have various factors that can do that. So when we talk about getting you up to the 500 to 800 that's, that you quoted, the urology, but maybe that's the uh, normal range. And, of course, it's the normal range. If we took looked at 30-year-old males, that would be the normal range, and that's what we'd expect to see. Is that Bruce back? Okay. Yes. Bruce, there you are. So, uh, so if we get you to the normal range, you don't have prostate cancer, then your PSA will not rise rapidly, and you can see if your insulin resistance improves and your triglycerides levels will drop. That'll be one of the ways that you can tell is that they'll get down into the normal range. And that, by the way, also reduces your cardiovascular disease risk, which is also quite elevated in people with uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, sometimes called NASH syndrome. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware of the VA study they did in 2015. They published it, but they treated 43,900 men, and they found that 24% had a reduction in heart attack risk, 36% had a reduction in stroke, compared to those not being treated, and a 56% lower overall death rate compared to the untreated, which they treated 43,000. They had another 30,000 they didn't treat, but they normalized, whatever normalized means, but they were low testosterone. They brought in what they thought was the normal range. Do you know if that was a, do you know if that was a randomized study? Because obviously it wasn't, can't really be a placebo, well, maybe they gave them a fake, uh, fake testosterone. They had over 80,000 participants. That doesn't matter. What matters is, what matters is it was it randomized? Did they do eeny meeny miny mo when they put the people into the two groups? That's really important because you you can have selection bias if you treat your healthier guys or the guys decide they want to be treated. You have to look at behavior like exercise and so it's I I, I probably read the it's study the seven years ago. Well, right, which is called self selection and is considered right. in science a confound. So there's there's you know, without reading carefully the methods section of a study, which which I'm sure I read it when it came out, but it's, you know, seven years ago I won't remember exactly the methodology. It's so those it's suggestive, and I don't have any problem with a, with agreeing that that probably is true, but the magnitude of it really de, really you can't use those numbers and hang your hat on them unless it's placebo controlled. And randomized, and the randomized part is hard to do. Also, if it's a large and it's a large group, so there may be uh, you'd have to look at regional variability as well. Obviously, humans are not all not all veterans behave the same way. Some of them keep exercising, some of them don't. And uh, however, I wonder what your question for me is uh, now with respect I guess to what yourself. Is really, what is optimum? In other words, everybody looks at what's normal. 
for testosterone as opposed to what's optimal, mm-hmm. which kind of gets skipped over. I agree with you. I think that there's a tendency to, uh, well, I mean, normal means the average, right? That's the root of the word, the norm. In there's there's the mean and the norm, and they mean exactly the same thing in lang- in statistics speak. So, uh, so the average person is me is a meaningless thing, and the average person is aging poorly or at least not aging optimally. So, but I don't think there's any single one variable that well, you can a string that you can pull mean, on everybody. It's, it's that they say normal is three hundred to a thousand fifty. So if you're at three twenty five. It, you're considered to be in the normal range. Well, you know, I'd argue with you on the fi- on the 1,050, but I'm sure there's some place somewhere that where it says that. What's the question in terms of why do we use why do we use that. normal instead of optimal? Uh, optimal's optimal would involve spending a whole lot more money to get people to optimal, and our healthcare system focuses on disease states and does not acknowledge that being normal in certain populations does represent a disease state. So the normal American is overweight, the normal American, which makes being overweight normal. Does it make it healthy? No. See what I'm saying? I I think we're arguing, I think we're arguing semantics here. I'm just questioning. I'm just questioning what is optimal for a testosterone level. It will depend. Well, what would probably... Does he have prostate cancer? Does he have a risk for prostate no. cancer? No, not that. Then I think um, optimal, I would probably shoot for around, uh, the best thing to do basically is to l- get a a free testosterone equivalent by getting your total testosterone and looking at your SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin, right, to right. get technical on you. If you're giving yourself too much testosterone, your body is going to start churning out more sex hormone binding globulin. You have a complicated uh, analytic uh, chromatographer, a a, a mass spectrometer called the hypothalamus in your brain, and it it knows what your sweet spot is, and it will try to get you there if the organs will oblige. And so sometimes the, uh, so when you start giving extra, if the hypothalamus thinks it's too much, it will express its opinion by causing your body to create more sex hormone binding globulin, which will then scarf up all the testosterone and keep it from being able to attach to the testosterone receptor. Now, the problem, and there is a downside to taking too much testosterone, which is it turns to estrogen, which is a growth hormone, along with DHT for prostate cancer and other cancers too. So you don't necessarily... Want too much, pre- uh, and furthermore, if you get too much estrogen, you're going to start to get man breasts and testicular shrinkage and all kinds of uh, changes that are n- not necessarily desirable for a- in a male. So it's okay. a, it's a point about threading the needle, getting the numbers right, and the numbers are essentially total testosterone, SHBG, estrogen, and uh, monitoring the PSA. And as long as you can keep all of those things in a, a reasonable range, you're fine. You've got you've got the person where they need to be. It's not an absolute number. There's multiple numbers that have to be attended to here. So, for God's right. sake, don't okay. get don't give yourself shots. Don't let them give you shots. That's the last thing I'll say on the matter. The shots. Comp- okay. 
those shots are completely non physiologic. A big spike of testosterone once, uh, once twice a month or four times a month if you're giving it weekly, and then slowly dwindling levels is nowhere doesn't even remotely resemble what your actual testicles and hypothalamus can consider physiologically normal. Yeah, actually, that's a recommendation of the AUA is to use a gel if you're going to... If you're going to do it, exactly, and you want to use it in the morning. Try to imitate that normal body's hormones. Hormones communicate with a rhythm. If you don't have a rhythm, you're not going to get the message you're trying to send. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate your question. And obviously, you're very intelligent and erudite. And uh, now you just have to find a doctor who will work with you. I hope. I, I, wish, you, <laughs> I wish you luck. That's the hard part. <laughs> well, you can always come to me if you're anywhere local. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right. So let's go to uh, our top story for today, which is an old Ayurvedic technique turns out to work in decreasing COVID-19 severity, and a whole bunch of other things besides. Twice daily flushing of the nasal cavity with a mild saline solution soon after testing positive for COVID-19 can significantly reduce hospitalization and death, according to a recent report coming out of the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. You can make the solution to rinse out your nose rather easily uh, by mixing a half teaspoon of salt and a half teaspoon of baking soda in eight ounces of boiled or distilled water. Please do not use tap water. There is a small possibility of getting an amoeba in your brain, which if it happens once, it's that's plenty. We don't want you to do it. You put it in a sinus rinse bottle. There are little things that look like gravy boats called neti pots. You technically even use one of those big blunt turkey basters, which gets a little messy. But the idea is you put the water in one sinus and one nostril and let it run out the other. This was published in the Ear, Nose, and Throat Journal and quoting one of the authors, Amy Baxter, we say in the emergency room that the solution to pollution is dilution. This is also done with poisoning, right? You push, uh, you give people a lot of milk and a lot of fluids and a lot of charcoal to get rid of the toxic. If you have a contaminant in a wound, the more you flush it out, the better you're able to get rid of dirt, viruses, and prevent things from attaching to you. Well, this study in the from the emergency room of uh, the Medical College of Georgia was pretty impressive. They found an 8.5-fold reduction in hospitalizations compared to the control group. And you know, that, given all the high-priced and difficult stuff that we were doing back in uh, 2021, it's, uh, it's substantial. So this was uh, a study. Patients 55 and older were enrolled within 24 hours of testing positive for COVID-19. This was Fairly early, it was fall of 2020, so September 24th through December uh, 20, sorry, September 24th through December 21st, 2020. No one of this 80 subjects died, but they were all followed for 28 days because it was a medical college and they had minions. Uh, so one participant in the group that was doing the nasal lavage with salt water was admitted to the hospital, uh, but 
of the group that was not doing sinus lavage were hospitalized, and this was randomized, uh, and 1.5% died. This this was a group with similar de- demographics, and so a reduction from 11% to 1.3% is pretty radical. So this thing was, as I said, published. This was done, as I said, back in the fall of 2020 when we were all looking for things. This is during the uh, hydroxychloroquine and the other agents that were otherwise that were uh, being promoted <laughs> bleach and and so on and there were studies that were also done i remember one where they used betadine and they were squirting betadine in their nose and they saw some improvement this uh, but it's probably is just dilution We've been working on drugs that interfere with the virus's ability to attach to the ACE2 receptor, of course, and that nasal mucos, uh, mucus IgA, which we talked about recently on the program, does exactly that by coating the virus and preventing it from being able to attach to the ACE2 receptor. If you just watch the virus, even that impairs the virus's ability to make the configurational change that it needs to do. Essentially, the virus has an enzyme. It it goes up to the cell wall and uses an enzyme that's present on the cell wall called furin to cut itself, kind of like like using a sharp edge to cut the handcuffs, uh, the ropes that are tying you together off. And this is called furin cleavage. One of the uh, agents that I was recommending and continue to recommend uh, for COVID prevention is the Chinese herb skull cap, which has a compound on it that inhibits furin. But we don't have any data about using skull cap extract in the nasal lavage, but it crosses my mind that as I read this, that you know, that might not be such a bad idea because you're delivering fairly concentrated skull cap without having to go through the digestive tract where you know, dilutional effects are uh, are fairly significant. So the symptoms were lower in the group that did the lavage, and the average number of uh, compliance, if you will, pe- the group managed 1.8 irrigations daily. So about 11 out of the 62 had, uh, you know, burning in their nose or something like that. You can boot the bicarbonate a little bit if that's going on. And uh, they also did a subgroup analysis looking at people who were obese who were in this group. Uh, They talk in this review article about where they got the idea. And in fact, nasal irrigation has been done for millennia in, in Southeast Asia, as I said, India, Ayurvedic medicine. And in countries like Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand, there were lower death rates. Of course, when you talk about epidemiology and death rates, you have to wonder about how accurate was the information gathering, and how uh, accurate are those death rates. But nevertheless, there was a study done before COVID in Thailand looking at nasal irrigation and basically showing that it was very, very helpful in allergies, improved sinus pain, improved headache, improved taste and smell. And it really falls into the category of won't hurt, might help. I highly recommend it to my patients when they have allergies. I find that people who like insist on keeping their cats, for example, uh, even though they have uh, cat 
dander allergy if I can get them to either wash the cat or wash their nose. And I can tell you, washing your own nose out is a lot easier than washing your cat. Uh, They do much, much better and can usually abandon their nasal steroids and have fewer sinus infections. So I've been a fan of nasal lavage since I first learned about it 25 years ago and do recommend that we consider it for all viral illnesses. We're heading into uh, cold and flu season and maybe using nasal lavage along with proper dental hygiene like flossing and uh, brushing your teeth would be a prudent thing for us all to be doing. Scientists have long suspected there's a link between artificial sweeteners and obesity in humans, but until now, they've only been able to show the connection in lab mice. Now, in this first trial of its kind, scientists in Israel have tested these chemicals in humans, and their results show that artificial sweeteners not only disturb the microbes living in the guts of humans, which are critical for supplying essential nutrients, making vitamin K, and helping you digest dietary fibers, among other things, but may impact how quickly the body removes sugar from the blood after a meal. The longer glucose stays in the blood, the greater the risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and chronic kidney disease. Well, there, you know, they, we use uh, artificial sweeteners with the hope of getting that sweet test without having to pay the calorie price. But it's uh, substantially true, says Aaron Elianaviv, in an immunologist at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel, leader of the latest study. Maybe these things aren't uh, inert in human. Maybe non nutritive sweeteners actually have unintended consequences. And boy, did she said it? Did did they prove it? The disruption of the microbiome occurs because the non-nutritive sweeteners, although they are zero calories for humans, we don't have the enzymes to digest them. Some of the microbes, they serve as food. They are bacteria chow for the bad bacteria, which then proliferate. This causes an imbalance, pro-inflammatory, and can cause, we know, chronic intestinal inflammation and are associated with colon cancer. There's a colon cancer microbiome, and you don't want it. They're designed to be calorie-free for us, but our gut microbes can still thrive on them. So this Israeli study confirms that non-nutritive sweeteners disrupt the gut microbiome within two weeks of exposure. And furthermore, it suggests that their effects on sugar metabolism vary from person to person. Not everyone gets insulin resistant, but some people get substantially insulin resistant. Dr. Katz of the Yale University Yale Griffith Prevention Research Center says this is an elegant, elaborate, and powerful study which establishes decisively that non-nutritive sweeteners impair glucose metabolism by damaging the microbiome. Now, we think of taste buds, sweet receptors as being in our tongue, but actually taste uh, sweet receptors are actually present throughout the digestive tract. And in fact, our our gut tastes food uh, with its bitter and sweet receptors and decides what to do about what's coming down the pike, so to speak, 
based on whether it's sweet or bitter. So, you know, think about natural sugars and what happens here. First of all, sugar is a very good, highly efficient form of energy and easily absorbed. So we have an evolutionary adaptation driving us to seek out high energy foods. That's why we have a taste a fat, sort of a taste for fat and a taste for sugar. And things like glucose, fructose, cane sugar, milk sugars, when they're digested, they produce energy, which helps our organ function. And when you are in a scarcity situation, you're going to be driven to seek out the sugars. But sugars don't occur in the evolutionary environment with very high concentration. But of course, we're evolutionarily driven to concentrate them, hence boiling down sugar cane to make cane sugar, which is very similar to what we were talking about with hyperconcentrated pot or hyperconcentrated coca leaf. You end up with a drug and you end up with unintended consequences. So the very first artificial sweetener was saccharin, and it was discovered, believe it or not, in 1879 as a coal tar derivative, and those were being looked at for treatment of skin cancer, and one of them turned out to taste good. And uh, this was back at the, uh, back when the FDA was around the, uh, they tried to ban saccharin, actually, and uh President Theodore Roosevelt blocked that because he had a weight problem and he really liked to use his saccharin. Little historical tidbit there. Uh, Then in 1977, and I was in, I remember this one, the FDA tried to ban saccharin because it had been uh, suspected of causing cancer in rats. And Jimmy Carter protested the ban because so many people wrote letters to Congress. So they just put a, a cancer warning label. But science marches on, and eventually they found that while it did pose a cancer risk for rats, fed massive quantities, it didn't pose a cancer risk for humans because we broke it down differently. But the Elenov group in in Israel has been investigating artificial sweeteners for more than 10 years, and they're hoping... In they're hoping to develop microbiome-based personalized medicine. And there's actually a product that was marketed to me at one of the conferences I attended where they look at your microbiome and they determine what you've got in there that could be contributing to insulin resistance. And they use various measures, dietary interventions primarily, to shift what is going on so that you don't develop diabetes. And I'm not sure that those dietary shifts are specific enough to be uh, worth the money that you spend on the test. So I'm not advocating for that yet. I, I want to see more data before I recommend such a thing. But let's talk about the 2014 mice study. Uh, they gave saccharin, sucralose, and aspartame. So that's uh, trade names Equal and Splenda. And saccharin, of course, is uh, sweet and low, Right. And we've got the pink packet, the blue packet, and the yellow packet. And uh, then, of course, the sugar is either white or brown. Color coding. Uh, They all raised the blood sugar of mice when they were fed it more than the mice that were fed sugar. And they also took the gut microbes from the mice fed with artificial sweeteners 
in other words, that had been modified because they could metabolize these artificial sweeteners and then gave them to gut bacteria-free mice who'd never been given any artificial sweeteners, and they got insulin resistance. What about humans? So they did a study recently, and this was the one just published, and they managed to find 120 adults who had not previously been exposed to artificial sweeteners. And so they gave them either saccharin, sucralose, aspartame, or stevia for two weeks, and then they and then they gave them a glucose tolerance test. They also found differences in their microbe that were predictive of which artificial sweetener they were getting. So they could essentially look at how the gut flora shifted in these individuals and say, okay, going back later, that's a that's a sucralose profile, that's a Splenda profile, and that's a saccharin profile. So they gave them a glucose tolerance test, and it's basically a cola drink with with just glucose in it, glucola, it's called, it's very sweet. And then they check the blood sugars, it should just shoot up because that's such a readily available sugar, go up in 15 to 30 minutes and then start to decline and be back to normal in two to three hours. But if in insulin resistance, of course, those glucose levels remain elevated. And what they found was that Splenda and saccharin pushed the body towards glucose intolerance. So the yellow packet and the, and the little white pills and the pink packet, it uh, caused potentially long-term weight gain and long-term potential for developing diabetes. Interestingly enough, the blue packet and the stevia, which is often in a green packet, uh, did not affect the glucose to- uh, tolerance in this group. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that if you took it for a longer time, it wouldn't be the case. And long-term study is really needed. What we think is probably the case, or will turn out to be, is that it depends on the microbiome you start with and how much of these artificial sweeteners you consume. Interestingly enough, when I was in high school, I remember uh, I used to chew a lot of sugar-free gum. And the father of one of my classmates, who was a chiropractor, said, you should not do that because your system is going to, is going to throw insulin out thinking that you're going, that you're getting ready to ingest food because that you're going to have an increase in your blood sugar. So you're essentially triggering your pancreas inappropriately and it could give you low blood sugar, which by the way, low blood sugar in your teens is associated with an increased risk of diabetes in your forties. So I of course went on chewing my sugar-free gum until my jaw muscles gave out uh, about 10 years later. And uh, then, believe me, it was a very difficult habit to break. Probably not as bad as smoking or cocaine, however. What does this mean? Well, it means that we shouldn't, it doesn't mean, I should say, that we should start using sugar instead, because obviously sugar is going to create insulin resistance as well. And it may take a little bit longer, but we, but more sugar is clearly associated with the development of this condition. So what we should probably be doing is uh, limiting our use of artificial sweeteners and letting our taste buds readjust ourselves because I find that many, uh, many commercial foods, particularly, uh, 
fast food type things are way too sweet. And if you can just readjust your taste buds, it makes a huge difference. Uh, Big news today. I saw it over my husband's shoulder on uh, the silent CNN monitor that runs constantly in his office and uh, talking about a study showing that long-term use of a multivitamin uh, in a randomized clinical trial benefited cognition substantially. And so let's talk a little bit about the Cosmos Mind study. First of all, intentionally, this was uh, this was a large uh, randomized clinical trial of older adults, and they did very sophisticated uh, over-the-telephone cognitive testing, and also they sent them tests by mail, mostly maze-finding tests for that one. And they were actually designed the study to look at daily cocoa extract, and they gave 500 milligrams of cocoa flavanols because they had uh, reason to believe that that was going to be useful. Cocoa also contains a compound called uh, epicatechin. And epicatechin not only has uh, associations with being an anti-cancer compound, it lengthens your telomeres, so it triggers that search gene, similar uh, to the effect of resveratrol that many people take as a sort of uh, anti-aging agent. So lots of green tea is extremely good for you and lowers your risk of cancer. And it turns out there's quite a bit of it in cocoa. So uh, might be worthwhile to take your cocoa powder in your smoothie as an anti-cancer agent, although the this study failed to show a cognitive benefit. It's controversial. We had a little controversy earlier talking about studies, what they can with Bruce, what they mean, what they don't necessarily mean. And the problem with the vitamin studies is that much of the negative data comes from meta-analytic reviews, where they take a bunch of different studies that had slightly different techniques and intentions, and they vet them as being, quote-unquote, sound uh, in terms of their uh their methodology, and then they group the conclusions and they group the numbers in order to see whether there's statistical significance or not. But this is subject to all kinds of biases. So the way I like to think about when you see meta-analysis and they talk about putting together a bunch of different studies is meta-analysis is never conclusive when it's negative. And when it's positive, you have to consider effect size. So, for example, a 10% improvement uh, might be statistically significant, but it might not be clinically meaningful. And so it won't really matter to the individual, but over a large enough group, you can show statistical significance and get your paper published. But it isn't clinically useful as a doctor. And I see a lot of people coming in with, well, this worked in this, and I look at the paper and I'm like, yeah, it sort of kind of worked, but a three percent, uh, but losing two percent of your body weight is probably not going to be useful. That's really not enough to get the the effect you need. You know, if you can lose, turns out if you can lose ten percent of your body weight, even if you gain half of it back, you reap significant health benefits. But two or three percent is is cosmetic rather than being useful physiologically. 
But anyway, so to, just to get to the chase here, this was a big study, thousands and thousands of people, and they found an unequivocal improvement in uh, cognitive functioning compared to a control group in individuals who took a daily multivitamin. And one of the things that was surprising was a subgroup analysis that showed that if you have a history of cardiovascular disease, you get an even bigger benefit. And the, we're talking about multivitamins. We're talking, in fact, about the, the multivitamin Centrum Silver. If you're interested in what exactly were the doses, you can go and pull that one off the shelf at your local supermarket and take a look. But interesting study. And just nice to see positive studies with good designs. And yes, could be due to chance, but that's why we want to see multiple other confirmatory studies. On the other hand, a multivitamin is a pretty cheap thing to do. Another study on the subject of dementia comes in from uh, the American Journal of Neurology, or sorry, the, the journal Neurology, which is the American Academy of Neurology's magazine. And they looked at diabetes and behaviors. What are the seven healthy lifestyle habits that reduce dementia risk for people with diabetes? And they found seven things. Uh, and they scored, they gave people points for each positive thing. And then they looked at whether they developed dementia over the next, uh, let's see, I believe it was a I believe it was a five-year study, but I'll come to that in a moment. So what were the habits? Well, don't smoke. For women, no more than one drink a day. For men, no more than two drinks a day. Regular physical activity, which is to say walking for at least 2.5 hours or uh, per week, or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise, which would be running, jumping, fast bicycling, so exercise, right? Don't drink too much. Don't smoke too much. Seven to nine hours of sleep daily. So that means they weren't really sleeping seven to nine hours. They were in bed for seven to nine hours because that's all you can really measure. A diet, surprise, surprise, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fish, fewer refined pro- and uh, processed foods, uh, being less sedentary. So what is being less sedentary? It means watching television for less than four hours a day. That's a pretty low bar, folks. I think you can manage it. Frequent social contact, such as living with others or gathering with friends or family at least once a month and having a social activity at least once a week or more often. That's also a pretty low bar. So they, it was a 12-year study, so they followed them long enough for this to really be meaningful. And essentially, if you followed two or fewer of these seven healthy habits, your risk of developing dementia was 400% of those who followed all of the habits. And for each, per, for each habit, you got an 11% decreased risk of dementia. So even if you just do one or two of these over the next decade, you're doing yourself a serious favor. So I got this uh, email from uh, Frank in Scotts Valley, and Frank wrote uh, saying, what do you think of using uh, ADD drugs in people with mild dementia? 
I've been trying that with my wife and find that there's a uh, an improvement. Uh, so I wanted to look at whether there was any good data on using uh, ADD drugs in dementia, and I did find an article, uh, a pooled data analysis, in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry. And basically what it said was that it works for apathy. So not really giving a damn, not being engaged, having a, a, a very high activation energy, so not a lot of get up and go. It sort of stands to reason because drugs like Ritalin have been used uh, for children with uh, hyperactivity because when you give someone a stimulant who has hyperactivity, you stimulate the prefrontal cortex more than the rest of the brain, and the prefrontal cortex wakes up and starts suppressing the uh, the sort of impulsivity and the flight of ideas and the difficulty concentrating. The prefrontal cortex basically makes you focus and concentrate. And interestingly enough, when you take a look at someone's brain when they are in uh, what's called default mode, where they're not concentrating on much of anything, their brain is actually using more energy than when that person is doing something difficult, like a cognitive task, because essentially the the noise uses energy, and the prefrontal cortex shuts down the noise and makes you focus on your math problem or your your cognitive task. And in doing so, it actually your brain actually uses less energy, which I I just find that somewhat counterintuitive and interesting. But when they looked at uh, global cognition, that's to say orientation, attention, memory, verbal fluency, visual spatial ability, they did see a small positive effect of these drugs on cognition. So I think it's reasonable that for someone, particularly someone with mild or early dementia, you might uh, be able to get normalized behavior. And the question really is, is this just, is it temporary? I think probably so. I don't think it's preventative, but uh, it certainly has potential. We were talking earlier about the microbiome. So I wanted to uh, take the last few moments to, to tell you about a new study looked at ultra-processed food and colorectal cancer in men. And they, I, what do you think? The microbiome has a fairly profound effect on whether you get colon cancer or not. And ultra-processed foods, particularly ultra-processed meats, were associated with a 29% higher risk for developing uh colorectal cancer, which is not, uh, which is of course not a great cancer to get. This was published in the August 31st, 2020 issue of the British Medical Journal. And ultra-processed foods you can basically define as take a food that looks like itself, let's say a steak or a uh, wheat berry, you know, some grain. Now, grind it up and add some chemicals to increase its shelf life. In the case of meat, you're going to probably add sodium nitrate, which is a preservative, or salt, uh, which is also in higher levels a carcinogen, by the way. Or in the case of grain, you might add, oh, let's add some folic acid. Let's 
let's fortify that grain and let's grind it up so that it's readily digestible and raises the blood sugar rapidly so it gives quick energy. And surprise, surprise, when you do this, you actually increase the rates of colon cancer. This was a big study, three large prospective trials lasting more than 25 years, and they checked people every four years on their food frequency uh, and what they they looked at the highest, lowest quintile, fifth, and uh, definitely a huge issue for much greater frequency in the high quintile in men. Interestingly enough, uh, the results for women were not statistically significant, which I take to mean probably salami, uh, bologna, lunch meats in general, those types of convenience foods are probably because they're, they're, they tend to make you gain weight. Women are more likely to avoid them. And over time, that could have a substantial effect. The, the ready-to-eat meat, poultry, and fish-based product, I'm thinking about the typical bachelor diet. You know, Let's have uh, a whole bunch of tic- chicken tenders in the air fryer and a couple of beers, and that's dinner. And that is definitely not a diet rich in fruits and vegetables. The sugar-sweetened beverages made it much worse as well. So all of these sort of food-like substances, things with sugar and things with uh, that are ground-up grain or ground-up plants, are bad for you. The only ultra-processed food, and I, I think I'd quarrel with calling yogurt ultra-processed, but they considered it to be an ultra-processed food. Uh, What they found in women, but not in men, was that uh, there was an inverse correlation between colorectal cancer risk in women who consumed yogurt. So yogurt might counteract the harmful effects of the ultra-processed food to a certain extent. And I won't uh, belabor the point any further except to quote one of my favorite authors, Michael Pollan, and say, avoid food-like substances, uh, eat food, mainly plants, and not too much. So we're moving into a last few minutes of the program. I'm going to leave you with some medical news of the weird. And this is one I came across in uh, Le Monde, which is a French uh, daily newspaper. It's a history of a young man who'd been under hemodialysis for two years for kidney failure. And at the age of 31, he got a kidney transplant from a living donor, his mother, uh, who was a good tissue match, not unusual. And uh, about six months after the kidney transplant, the mother developed or was diagnosed as having ovarian cancer. And... About, and she died about a year and a half after that diagnosis, so a couple of years after uh, giving the kidney to her uh, to her son. Now, uh, about two and a half years after the graft, her son, the recipient of the graft, uh, that kidney stopped working, and they changed his immunosuppressants, and it didn't work, so they... Uh, They weren't really quite sure what was going on. About six months later, they found in his bloodstream uh, markers for ovarian cancer in a male. 
probably uh, CA125, which is what we use to track recurrence of ovarian cancer, and it can also be used diagnostically. So they did an imaging on him and found a, uh, next to the kidney, they found a mass, and it uh, they pulled out the kidney, and it showed that the organ had been entirely replaced by ovarian cancer cells. And they and then they did genetics on that, and they found that the genetics matched the genetics of the of the mother's tumor. So they, of course, t- uh, it, but he developed metastases in his lungs. Ovarian cancer, unfortunately, is very aggressive, and uh, despite chemotherapy, uh, he uh, eventually passed away. The uh, this is ha- this happens very rarely, and in a situation like this, uh, there was another case where a man got a ho- ovarian cancer in his kidney graft. He'd had a cadaver donor, in other words, someone who had brain death. Uh, she had a cardiovascular arrest, and of course, they didn't go and die. They didn't go and do a CT scan on the corpse to discover that she had a kidney uh, that she had ovarian cancer. So he also essentially was transplanted with a woman's cancer. This is a problem with transplantation, and we do give people immunosuppressant drugs, which probably increase their risk, but rock in a hard place. So that's a sad story, but part of the reality of medicine is that sometimes in meaning to do good, we do harm. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.